Um, this is Andy Brewer with the Healthcare Insights Podcast from Northwest AHEC, and we talk about healthcare issues affecting healthcare professionals primarily in the Northwest North Carolina region that we serve. And I have the honor and privilege to welcome my guest today, Dr. William Satterwhite. Welcome to the yeah, podcast. Thank you for having me. And uh, we're going to jump right in, and I'm going to ask, you know, you came from a degree in law, and I don't know much about how you put that into action, and yeah. then you went to med school. So maybe we could start there and, and, and go from there and see where that yeah, leads. Yeah, I, I have an unusual life story. Probably, probably the first interesting tidbit is I was actually born at Baptist Hospital when my dad was an ear, nose, and throat resident in the 60s. Then, of course, we've gone through a long phase of not delivering babies there, and now that's coming back. So I'm one of the original Baptist birthers, so to speak. My, my career path has uh, definitely not been one that was planned or thought out in advance in terms of uh, where I have ended up. I went to Davidson College. Go Wildcats. To, yeah, go Wildcats. Everybody's heard of them now because of Steph Curry. But <laughs> hello, Steph, if you're out there. And, and then went on to Carolina Law School and then moved to Charlotte, practiced healthcare law in Charlotte for about five years. Uh, did not find that to be a place I wanted to spend the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. And to make a very long story short, ended up thinking about going to med school, which meant I had to take the science prerequisites, the MCAT, apply, because I was a history major. I mean, I, I hadn't, I had taken the minimal amount of science. I took one chemistry and astronomy. Those were my Davidson sciences. And then ended up getting in med school here in the 90s. And that's actually what brought me back to Winston-Salem. And did the schooling here, pediatric residency here, then worked in private practice, then worked actually for Novant Health for about uh, 12 or 15 years. In that context, uh, started a pediatric practice, uh, saw kids a lot, but also did other administrative and executive things. If you've been a healthcare lawyer, right, it's easy for you to get involved in, you know, the workings of healthcare. And so a lot of that was fun. And then when... Uh, the institution here began thinking about sort of thinking differently. You know, healthcare is all built around sickness and disease. So if you were a bad driver and someone said, oh, I think you ought to help him get, you know, a little more driver's ed, in healthcare we would go, no, once he crashes, we're happy to step in. You know, if you're pre-diabetic, we don't do a whole lot. Once you got it, we know what to do. And so other leaders at the time were thinking gosh, you know, maybe we need someone thinking in the other direction, right? What would it be like to say, how do you stay well? How do you stay healthy? How do we go in that direction? None of healthcare is really built for that. And definitely individuals want that now. And definitely employers and companies that pay a lot for healthcare want that. And so uh, the institution said, hey, would you be interested in this job? We don't really know what it's going to be like. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty cool with stuff like that. And so in 2015 was when I came. And almost had a blank job description and sort of like, oh, we're not sure. Here are all these different ideas. Go for it. And so now we're four years down the road. Well, that you brought up the state of health care. And you know, one could argue that it's sick care. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's a good analogy, the yep. driver's uh, Thing. And, and the 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 direction heading towards well care and preventative medicine and and just uh, I guess uh, mind and body wellness as a whole is, is definitely a, a whole nother uh, set of topics. But I want to stick with the state of healthcare yep. and how it's changed over the years and how much has to be focused on healthcare as a business and how that affects both the education and training of new doctors and right. new healthcare professionals and right. that kind of thing. So I'm just going to let right. you riff on that yeah. for a little bit. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So so one of the uh, things impeding an easy shift from a focus on sick care to a focus on, you know, well care, well-being, or prevention uh, really is just the state of the economy for people and uh, the consequences within healthcare. So there are three key things that most people don't know. The first is most people in America don't have much money. So, that, and this really hit me hard when I was driving in the car and heard this news report a couple of years ago. 
that according to the Federal Reserve, they do this big survey every couple of years kind of on the state of people, you know, the personal economy, so to speak. 44% of Americans do not have $400 in a savings account to draw on in an emergency if they need it. 44%. And half, over half, actually don't have $1,000. So if you think about that, if you don't have 400 bucks, you'd have to borrow it from a friend, sell something, put it on a credit card. It doesn't take very long to do something in healthcare to hit 400 bucks, Right. I mean, that comes fast. And so I was like, wow, that's incredible. The other thing that's worth noting is 62% of all personal bankruptcies are because of medical expense. Now, already that kind of hits sort of the deep core of injustice to me. Like, that doesn't seem right, right? And then the third thing, which almost no one knows, is that for healthcare systems, roughly half of what we would call their bad debt, uncollectible payments, is with people who have health insurance. Health insurance is supposed to be the answer. And for a long time, it has been, right? I mean, for a long phase, it has been. But over the last decade, that has really shifted, so that's no longer true. And so all of a sudden, we're in this weird situation where individuals can't pay for care, so the natural thing is to delay. So when I went to med school, I actually was 31, had three kids, a fourth came, it was kind of like my car. Unless it was smoking, I did not take it in. Right? And they're like, it's time for preventive care for your car. I was like, no way. We're going to eat this week. We're not taking the car in. right? So that's how people approach it for their bodies and their lives. And so what happens is uh, they don't do anything, which is totally rational and understandable. And there's a catastrophe, a crisis, a wreck. And they come into the hospital and it costs $20,000. Well, they can't pay their share. right? They just don't have any money for it. And, and health systems are somewhat stuck. So the health system response is to say, you know, if, if we charged you, you know, $20,000 and the insurance company pays sixteen, and you owe me 4000 and you can't pay it, well, next time I do that operation, I really need to charge 24000 or 25000 right, to recoup that because it's really not going to come from the individual. So we go back to insurance companies and say, pay us more, pay us more, pay us more. And uh, then they, you know, if they agree to that, then they in turn go to the employers who are insuring these people and say, oh, healthcare is raising all their prices and drugs cost more. We're going to have to raise our costs to you so your premiums are going up. And for a long time, employers have absorbed that and continued to pay a higher portion of the share. Now, some of that's gotten passed on to employees, so more and more has. But now it really has. Because if, if you think about it, if you sell cars you know, are you going to add $500 a year to the price of every new car? Well, no, because the buyer will just go online and buy it for less, right? I mean, there's so much price transparency. So what's happened, to bring it to a full circle, is the employers raise their copays and deductibles, right? Which then means a person avoids care even more, right? And then they have something terrible happen, they can't pay. And so we go around and around and around like that. And so the price escalates and the care kind of falls because people don't get it. And, and so it has brought me to the place of saying insurance no longer works as the answer for care for people. And that everyone is acting rationally within their little tiny bubble, but you put all that together, and we now have a system that actually doesn't work very well for half of all Americans. So, I mean, if you want to know why the political debate was what it was in 2016, get rid of all this stuff, turn the clock back, or, hey, turn it forward, let's have Medicare for everyone. That's why half the people are, like, saying, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, you know. And, and so that's why we're in a big crisis. Yeah, so— we had this whole debate about the ACA, and that got implemented, and the switch to value-based care, I guess, and quality, quality measures, and and, and right, med- uh, what is it, patient-centered medical homes, yeah. and yeah, all yeah, this stuff. Yeah. So, before we started the podcast, you mentioned it's actually harder now to see patients. Um, how did we get there from? Well, I know ACA was more insurance reform versus healthcare reform, right. but. Um, has the switch to value and outcomes helped any of that? Has it, you know, has it, it helped it in terms of seeing patients? Well, mean, I guess or? in 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 whatever uh, form that you know, how's it Just helped? How's it hindered? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, 
yeah, so Obamacare was essentially an attempt, <coughs> excuse me, to get universal insurance for everybody, which ironically enough was the Republican plan for health care reform in the 90s. The Clintons wanted to do more than that, and that was it. So uh, that's where we have landed today. Um, and, and of course, insurance only works because non-users pay for users, right? So if you and I and all of our neighbors have homeowners insurance, we're all paying a thousand dollars a year in case your house gets hit by lightning, and it costs a hundred thousand dollars to rebuild, and right. And, and so that's tricky with healthcare because we pay for a lot more than just the catastrophes. So the price is high. That'd be like paying if your roof leaked, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Of course, I may go, you know, Andy doesn't clean off his roof. That's why it leaks, you know. But or, or maybe there's a legit reason. Uh, and and so there's this push to kind of cover everyone and do all that. But but part of getting you know sort of buy-in from everyone, which is what it takes, right, in America, um, there were a lot of things added to that that have increased the burden. So, for example, to get health systems, hospital systems, a hospital association to buy in, uh, especially to the to what ended up as a mandate to have electronic medical records. Um, the government said, we will give you money to implement electronic health records. And you had a couple of years to do that and a deadline to do that. If you didn't do it by the deadline, then they were going to actually pay you 1% or 2% less across all your Medicare business forever and ever thereafter. And if you did it, you got like 1% more or 2% more, something like that. Well, so what that meant was, okay, uh, all the doctors are now going to, who are doing Medicare are going to get an electronic medical record, you know, and which ones can handle it and blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, the law also said, well, it's not just enough to get it. You actually have to use it, right? And you have to be able to show that you use it. So this phrase came up called meaningful use, which then said, well, to prove that you're using it in a meaningful way, not just kind of have it on the shelf over there, here are all these things you have to do in every visit, right? And so all of a sudden, the burden for the doctors goes way up. Because to say you have to check all these boxes for every patient every time uh, is kind of nonsensical. It's actually not true. I mean, we went through a phase when I was seeing little kids where it was mandated that we ask them all if they were smoking and using tobacco. Well, most six-month-olds are not. (laughs) It seemed like a bad question to ask, right? My parents would look at us like, I don't think I want to take my child here anymore. Yeah, this guy's crazy, right? And and so there are a lot of those kind of things that suddenly come to bear in a heavy way in that exam room. The other thing that's tough about electronic health records is most of them are built from a billing perspective back down to the front line, whereas most technology is designed to help the user, right? To make your life easier as the frontline person, not hey, we can collect money for all these things that we've done. And so it has gotten a lot harder to see somebody. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just has. And while there are lots of shortcuts and tricks and things that you can do. Yeah, I I hear that complaint about, uh, you know, a patient just sees the doctor's silhouette as they at the keyboard. Yeah, yeah. So they don't don't get that interaction. So, you know, that's an example of technology being implemented to – supposedly help the system that's kind of uh, impacted patient care and clinical visits. Um, Do you see any any hope for technology and specifically maybe personalized medicine uh, where we can, each individual might know more about themselves and what things might happen in the future that they can plan for? Or is that... uh, more of a scary big brother kind of uh, too much information well, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot yeah, there. That's but. a question for like all, all things that we, you know, <laughs> true, all true. the free apps or whatever we have, right? Um, I think that uh, that technology, well, well, so I'll say this now that I've kind of trashed electronic medical records. <laughs> there is some value to that in that, it, you know, it, it is easy to see what's happened for people. I mean, you don't have trouble with legibility, like reading a doctor's handwriting. If you saw someone yesterday and I'm seeing them today, you also have a huge data source to pull from. And you can start saying, uh, you know, Bill's patients get out of the hospital days later than Andy's patients. I wonder why that is, right? So there's a lot of value to that. It just makes it hard sort of in the moment for the doctor to do that. 
the the technological advances that are impacting patient care, particularly in a personalized way, are mostly happening outside the standard lane of classic traditional healthcare. And there are lots of reasons for that. The biggest one is that all the payment models from Medicare, Medicaid, Blue Cross, United, all those people, for the most part, are geared down the path that everything is currently on. And so that's one reason that a lot of people have to go around the sides of that, you know, get it on their own, pay for it themselves, whatever that is, 23andMe, whatever. And then the other issue with some of that stuff is early on with almost any new foray into some sort of, you know, health thing, uh, often you don't know what it means. Or, you know, there's just sort of not enough on it to know is it going to be helpful or not, you know. And, and so all that is, is coming and happening. And one of the tough challenges for us in sort of mainline healthcare is to say, how do we keep up with all of those changes and innovations and jump in those waters and swim? Because that's where a lot of that's happening. Uh, and yet still do our main thing, right? We don't really want to end up like retail clothing stores where all of a sudden you buy everything online. And you're like, well, now what am I going to do with my store, right? So there's a lot to, to think about there. Uh, but, I mean, you can buy otoscopes that hook up to your iPhone, take a picture of your eardrum. You know, you can buy EKG tracers that hook up to your iPhone that you can text to the doctor and say, here's what my heart is doing. I mean, that's all stunning, right? I mean, so you can yeah, be well, in I California th- and do that, and we're sitting right here in North Carolina. Right, and I, I think I think that further that begs the question of the digital divide and that those who have the means to do the 23andMe's and do the uh, wellness devices yeah, yeah. and all that stuff will do that. And yeah. I'm wondering what incentive structures could be implemented to reward those people who are doing that in that maybe their health care cost or their insurance cost or however we, yeah. we yeah, pay yeah. into yeah. the pool um, gets incentivized for doing more of that. And those who aren't so well off giving them uh, some sort of incentives to adopt a, a lifestyle change and, yeah, and modify yeah. their behaviors and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question. The, um, so one of the uh, contrasts I would make between classic health insurance is with car insurance, right? So, so car insurance and the rates that you are charged are getting more and more personalized, to use that word, right? In fact, you know, I see commercials on TV about, hey, if you just let us stick this thing on your car, it could totally adjust your insurance rate, mm-hmm. right? If you're a good driver, you know, the good driver reward thing or whatever they call it, right? And so, you know, that is a model where your risk is just kind of you, right? Uh, healthcare is not so much that way. Right, it's much more of a groupthink thing because the funding's got to come from this really large and, and vast uh, group. And so, if if all the healthy people, instead of paying five hundred dollars a month, got to pay one hundred dollars a month, then the unhealthy people are going to pay nine hundred dollars a month, right? And where's that funding going to come from if that's actually what it takes to sort of float the cumulative boats all that are out there? Mm-hmm. So it's a tough tough dynamic on that. The other thing that's particularly tough is, uh, and and the reason I started with it, is that stat about 44% of Americans not having $400. So so most, what that means is that crowd is basically living paycheck to paycheck. And so being able to make lifestyle changes is pretty tricky if you actually have no margin to make it. Yeah, no, I agree. So it's a tough one. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I like the community outreach pra- programs that try to uh, reduce emergency room visits, um, things like that, like Faith Health we have yeah, here right. at, yeah, at our absolutely. institution. seems like uh, if there was more uh, emphasis on those type programs for yeah. wellness in underserved communities yeah. and, and, you know, because poverty sucks for anybody. Right, um, right. Uh, and I think that... Th- you know, food deserts. You could go into a whole lot yeah, of different sure. uh, pieces of that puzzle, but I think um, the more focus we could put into those communities that don't have the resources to 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 do that on their own. Not not saying give them money to pay for insurance, but right. to right. provide uh, 
what is it? I don't know, more more gyms, more more programs well, for yeah, people yeah, to Yeah, those are great ideas. And then, and I would piggyback on that to say that um uh, the areas where I have found the most success in this role is actually just trying to take care of two people. So, so we leave our bricks and mortar buildings and we say, what are the things that we can actually take to people and uh, do as much care, whatever level of that is, be as helpful as we can where they actually are. So some of the examples are stuff that we've done actually with employers. And sometimes the lingo for that is direct to employer. And employers like it because they're actually paying a lot, right, already. And many are what we call self-funded for healthcare, so they're sort of paying all their own costs up to some certain amount, the same way you might have a high deductible on your car insurance. Okay, I'll pay the first $1,000 of body damage, and then, you know, some, some way insurance is going to pay after that. And what we have found is in those contexts, whether we send a nurse out to people who has a lot of authority to make a lot of decisions and be helpful or a PA or nurse practitioner or doctor or whatever – it tends to be highly effective, actually, because you're coming to people where they are. They're not having to leave work. You know, you can't take out their appendix there, but you can do a lot of care mm-hmm. with minimal tools, some of the technology that we've talked about. And uh, usually it's at a lower price point because you've sort of shed the overhead of the big, you know, uh, box. And uh, and the results can be very powerful. And, and so... Uh, uh, I and my team and then others like the Faith Health crowd continue to say, okay, how much of that can we bring internally to our own employees and others, right, to just care for them directly? Uh, how much can we do for outside employers and different companies where the need is always there? And again, because of the economic situation that we talk about, you know, about half of everybody's workforce is in that boat, right? And And then also with Gary Gunderson and others on his team, how do we actually do that more in the community in a context where uh, a lot of people don't have insurance and they have other things of life that have a huge impact on how they're doing? Because the reality is if you take someone who uh, goes to RER or Navant Health CR you know, once a month, twice a month, and some people go multiple times a month, you can pretty quickly offset that cost by just sending somebody to them. Many times, you know, you, you could send a nurse every day and still save money and honestly be more helpful mm-hmm. most of the time. And so it takes a mindset shift. It takes a uh, sort of a different practice philosophy on what are you going to do and how you're going to do it and, uh, and thinking about things differently, mm-hmm. you know, that you don't have to come to me as the doctor or come to my space at the time I say, and here's how we're going to build some insurance or whatever. Uh, so it's highly effective. Yeah, I think you know ROI is a measure we always look at, but I also think social capital is is something that's intrinsic, but it's hard to yep. measure. But yep. I think you know building trust in the community yep. and outreach and 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 bringing healthy programs and opportunities into the communities and and, and fostering it that way. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit since you're the wellness director at at. Uh, Baptist, um, what what is the biggest incentives? What incentives work the best for getting people involved in in their own health and wellness yeah. journey yeah. in it's the workplace? Uh, it's a great question. Get asked that a lot, and probably my answer is going to surprise you. I don't think incentives work that well, and it, you know it's kind of like paying your child to get good grades. Uh, I mean, they they will perhaps work harder to get good grades because you gave them something. But at the same time, you're shifting actually why they're doing what they're doing. And so uh, most of the studies around incentives will show that, uh, you know, uh, uh, quick, immediate incentives get quick, immediate actions. And uh, and long-term sustained things don't work unless you have long-term sustained incentives. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, for example, Companies will set up incentives where they say, okay, for you to stay tobacco-free, we're going to do uh, a blood test. There's a kind of test you can check to see if people have tobacco products inside themselves. And, and you know, we're going to do that every three months. And if you continue to be clean, so to speak, then you get $100 off your monthly insurance. Mm-hmm. But if we test you and, you know, you've been using tobacco, then boom, next month you're going back again, Right. So that kind of thing works well. What doesn't work well is to say, 
um, hey, come to our giant corporate screening. We'll check your BMI and your blood pressure and cholesterol and, you know, pay $100. Mm-hmm. That has very little impact. Mostly the people who are already moving down a path toward being healthy will engage with that and go, great, hey, my cholesterol is still awesome. Or, you know, oh, my BMI went up. I better, you know, work out more. But, but that's because they're intrinsically motivated mm-hmm. anyway, right? And, uh, and so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Since I have been at the medical center, I have gradually shifted funding from incentives where people were just sort of showing up to do something to saying, no, we're going to reallocate those funds toward people and programs that we know are going to work for folks, even if that's a much smaller group. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a little bit of a different mindset than what had been happening historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, incentives in and of themselves only tend to create you know, an immediate behavior moment, mm-hmm. so to speak. Right. Right. Well, one of the things I, I've had conversations with people about is is uh, you know, and, and being very judgmental is when you drive up Hawthorne Hill, for example, and the yeah. whole row yeah, is yeah, lined up right. with healthcare yeah. workers smoking cigarettes yeah. and eating, you know, fried yeah. foods yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. And it kind of bugs me because that's the front line. Yeah. That's oh, where yeah. people see yeah, front door. when they when they yeah. walk through the front yeah. door. And, and it's yeah. like, how how do we change that behavior? I mean, you go to. Uh, a provider, a private yep. practice, and the, the the person checking you in is morbidly obese. Yep. I mean, you're not setting a great example. Yep. I mean, I, it just it bugs me that healthcare workers, the ones yep. who should know the best, yep. are not living the example. I mean, how yeah. do we how do we address that? Yeah, I think that um, uh, addressing that first has to come from. Uh, you know, uh, uniform leadership buy-in all the way at the top. Second thing that has to happen is you have to use the health insurance plan. Uh, and, for example, take tobacco. So the most common way that's addressed is through in- insurance premium reductions or penalties, depending on what you want to call it. Most companies will, uh, let's say the insurance is going to be, you know, $300 a month for a person. What they'll do is they'll raise it to $400 a month and then say, if you pass the blood test for tobacco, it's 300 for you. Mm-hmm. And so the odd saying is, you know, the, the users of tobacco actually pay for the reduction for the non-users. Mm-hmm. That's how that ends up working. Uh, and so you've got to have that kind of power to it to get people to shift. I think historically it hasn't really mattered. Like people haven't really cared if healthcare workers seemed unhealthy. But in an odd way, as we've made so much progress against, you know, catastrophic illnesses, diseases, heart attacks, stroke, all that, people in their own minds are beginning to shift to say, well, what does it look like to be well, mm-hmm. right? You know, again, you, you handle it great if I'm sick and dying and you get me out of the ICU and you get me out of the hospital. Isn't that great? But I might not actually be totally well, and that's what I'd like to be, mm-hmm. you know? I do want to play ultimate Frisbee you know, until <laughs> I'm 70, right? And so what does that look like? And so now people are thinking much more like, well, shouldn't you be modeling what you were doing? I mean, if you went to the YMCA or LA Fitness and said, I'd like a personal trainer, and someone came out who was significantly obese, and you thought, that person has never like worked out in their lives. You're, you're probably not signing up with that person, right? Right, right. And so that is a, a, you know, a glaring problem for us in, in healthcare. The other thing that's tough in healthcare <coughs> is um, it's a pretty stressful job. Yeah, I was going to mention fatigue, caregiver fatigue and burnout. Oh, totally, right. And so, you know, I've done residency. We would stay up all night, and when I was a resident, the cafeteria gave you free candy if you were on call. (laughs) So you could always tell who was on call because they had a giant bag of candy in their pocket because they were going to eat it all night long to sort of keep going. And those were the days before there were any kind of hour limits or anything. You worked all day, worked all night, worked all day, that, that kind of pattern to it, which is terribly unhealthy, right? But that becomes the mindset mm-hmm. of what you do, and you sort of press on. And so uh, stress is a huge factor in unhealthiness, mm-hmm. whether it's blood pressure, blood sugar, weight, all of that. And it's a stressful place to work. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of things that are difficult about the structure of it. 
And, you know, you can't break away for a peaceful one-hour lunch Yeah, yeah. at most places in the medical center. Yeah, we have a lot of programs at Northwest AHEC about preventing caregiver yeah. burnout, providing oh, yeah. burnout, and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's a huge issue. Um, I, it's, a couple things come to mind there. I, I, I remember these images about uh, Japanese culture, for example, and the, the corporations and all the employees out on the yeah. floor doing yeah. exercises right. and stuff. And, and yep. wouldn't that... Be great. I mean, I always thought that was awesome, and then some yeah. people were like, "That's that's so not, yeah, you know, America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're individual. Yeah. We're very and, individualistic. Right. And and, and right. but I, I I see like building those programs up is like, well, we have the walk program sometimes, yeah. Yeah. And, and and those yeah. kind of things. But it it just seems like that would be a good thing to yeah to incorporate. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up is anecdotally from a personal standpoint, I had a healthcare event a few years ago where I was in the hospital and. One of the things I noticed is the meals that were provided were so anti-healing. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. it was a lot of sugars that's and right. carbs. That's right. Yeah, that's and right. I was like, I can't eat this. I mean, I'm, right. I'm a healthy eater anyway. Yeah. So I, I was just like, yeah. eh. and they would call me and say, hey, aren't you going to put your order in? It's like, no, because I don't want any of this. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. going to. I'll get my food on my own. So, I mean, ha- and you mentioned yeah. buy-in from the top down. I mean, it seems like. From a 360 perspective, it would be a yeah. good model to provide meals that yep. support healing, especially when you're in the hospital recovering from some. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the uh, uh, very progressive forward pushing, pushing uh, health systems will have a lot of rules around what food is allowed on the premises, essentially. And, and they will have rules about if you're going to have a, a, a working lunch meeting this, these are the types of things you can order out and bring in, and these are the things you can't, right? And they'll get rid of, you know, all sweet drinks in the soda machines, period, you know. They'll get rid of the deep fryers in the cafeteria, so there's no fried food whatsoever. And, uh, and they will have those kind of things, and that'll carry on to the patient level, too. Oh, I want a fried chicken sandwich. Well, we don't actually do that anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. Here you have your grilled chicken, your baked chicken, whatever it is. Uh, and I think that um, that we will probably end up there, but that's a hard one. People care a lot about what they eat, mm-hmm. and we eat for all kinds of reasons. You know, only one of which is I'm hungry. Yeah, <laughs> right. I eat for pleasure. I eat for stress release. I eat because it's an event. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons, and and so it's tricky because our customers, if you want to call it that, are outside patients that actually might like you know a sausage and egg biscuit or. A steak right. biscuit covered with gravy in the morning, even though they're on the cardiac floor recovering from a heart attack, right? You're <laughs> right. like, uh, somehow this doesn't feel right, right? It just doesn't. Yeah, drinking sodas all night. Yeah. And keeping yeah, the nurses away. Right, and, yeah. You know, yeah, up it's my it. eighth Mountain Dew. You're like, well, right, <coughs> uh, I'm thinking that's probably not good. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's hard. Uh, and, and, you know, that creates a lot of friction to make that kind of change. Yeah, and I've noticed since I've been an employer employee here is that even in the cafeteria there's a basically a tax on unhealthy mm-hmm, foods mm-hmm. like you get the employee discount yeah. with the baked chicken but you don't get it with the fried yeah, chicken yeah, exactly. i love that exactly. i mean burgers used to be the cheapest thing you could get and now they're not yeah and, and yeah. so it prevents me once in a while like yeah i'm gonna get this these fried chicken fingers I'm yeah like, but i don't get the discount and yeah one of the most expensive yeah, things it's so a double hit i'll go back to the salad bar or the yeah. soup or the yeah. mindful bar and stuff yeah so. that's one of the um uh, the good first steps in that direction you know that we've taken and 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 we are gradually spreading that to all the other uh campuses as well uh and one of the uh, there are kind of two ways to think about those sorts of changes one is you do it cold turkey you know, as of January 1, here's all the stuff that will never set foot on this place again, you know, and now here's what we're going to do. The other is uh, you actually uh, create what we would call friction on the path to doing things that are less healthy. So you actually just make it a little bit more expensive, a little bit more difficult. And so sometimes uh, companies and, and health systems will do things like this. They will... Um, they will put the uh, fried food at the very back of the cafeteria because most people actually get food that's in the first third to half. So you put all the healthy food up at the front. You put the bad stuff at the back. You only have one person working there, mm-hmm. right? So the line is always longer. You know, it takes forever to get a burger and fries here, right? <laughs> and you do things like you can only pay cash. 
I mean, it's these little kind of things. You can get it if you want to. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be more of a pain. And so uh, by increasing the friction along the path to getting it, you'll tend to decrease the people who do. And then you make everything else easier, right? So it's like biking downhill. Great if you just go to the, you know, the stir-fry place where they're doing all this stuff. This is so easy. It'll take you one minute to get exactly what you want, and it's awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are different ways that that's accomplished. Yeah, I, th- I think we're modeling that pretty well at, at the cafeteria yeah. there. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciated that, yep. and, and it helps me stay on no, track Oh, it does, well. right, yeah. right. And then, yeah. you know, if you have the employee discount, it's insanely cheap. It's like the best mm-hmm. meal you could ever get. I need to start bringing my family over here to eat. <laughs> well, you know, that brings up... Uh, the notion of, again, I mentioned food deserts and, and yeah. cheap calories. And yep. um, part of the education process is, is showing people that eating healthy doesn't have to be expensive. It actually can be cheaper. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a challenge that we face is, is, is. is, is going out into the communities. I mean, the, you know, 40 years ago, even the underserved communities or the more impoverished communities ate more local and right. they grew more Correct. food and had time yep. to do it. But now a lot of things have changed where yep. the only food that's accessible is is, is the worst kinds of, yep. I would hardly even call it food. It's yep. just, and it's incredibly cheap. Yeah, I mean. I mean, I often tell people if I could, you know, if I had $5 to eat on every day, I would probably go fast food. Because mm-hmm. you can get like 2,000 calories in one meal. Easy. Like good for the whole day, right? And and so what are you going to do if you really, really can't? Uh, you're, t- you're, you're right in the sense of healthy food doesn't have to be expensive. People have to have, um, you know, access and transportation and some smarts about how to do that. You know, a giant bag of beans like you would see in the old Wild West days. I mean, that's really, really cheap. Um, but you got to know how to get it and what to do with it. And mm-hmm. it's hard to take that on the bus if that's what you're riding as your primary transportation. I don't know if they'd be allowed on a bird scooter <laughs> or not, but maybe you could figure that out. Uh, and and then in a context of pretty extreme poverty, um, often many families are using the same space and the same kitchen, the same refrigerator. And so if you go to the store and buy lots of healthy food, even at a great cheap price and you aren't there, I might eat it. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. yeah. I remember that from my college days. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's just like that, uh, except kind of worse. And so, uh, what that does is that forces people who are working, um, and, and, you know, maybe I'm working and I'm 25 years old or something, uh, mostly just to get fast food when I'm hungry. I sort of eat it now, because uh, if I do buy the beans and the baked chicken and the you know vegetables on sale or whatever, yeah, I, I'm not going to actually get to eat it all. Mm-hmm. Right? Other people end up eating it. Yeah, I have this vision of going out into the communities, especially in the rural communities of our region that are suffering from you know economic downturn, uh, yeah, the opi- opioid crisis, yep. all these things, yep. and and how do we? Uh, how do we invigorate the yeah. uh, meaning and purpose in those communities? And I'm thinking community gardens and yeah. you know sharing yeah. the co-op production yeah. Yeah. of healthy things. And and wouldn't that be a a great great thing to yeah. to, to to do? So for those of you listening out there that <laughs> that are interested in healthcare, maybe community garden and culinary medicine and and yeah. organic farming as related to because i think we get away from the notion of let thy food be thy medicine and thy medicine yeah. be thy food i mean right. that's the yep. first front line of wellness yep. is what you put into your body yep. and i think i think we could get more towards that and um going back to uh, you know people thinking about going into healthcare what what mm-hmm. do you see as the challenges mm-hmm. now for you know we talked about how hard it is or the impact on <laughs> providers and how yeah, it's right. harder to see right. patients. Go to law school to instead. Law. <laughs> <laughs> but what would you say to, you know, someone wanting to go to healthcare or someone in healthcare that wants to uh, to to go on to a, a more advanced degree and, and that kind of thing? Yeah. What, what are some of the yeah, things? Um, yeah, a couple of different sort of random thoughts. I think that um, uh, healthcare can still be a beautiful place to work. There's a lot of good that happens and a lot of personal reward that comes. It's in a context that's very different than 20 years ago, which was probably different than 40 years ago. But 
you know, definitely, I, I remember as a kid actually rounding in the hospital with my dad at these random times when we'd be together and he'd go. It didn't take him any time. He would practically document, you know, on the equivalent of a note card, you know, from the visit with whoever, and that was good enough, you know. And and uh, so there's the, there's a increased burden for doing a lot of the stuff, but if you're coming along now, that's the only world you've ever known, and so that feels normal, right? It's only hard if you used to know it in a different way, and and so I think there's still a lot of reward and joy that comes for that. Probably the the single biggest obstacle. Uh, is just the cost of education for med school, you know, and how long it takes. So most graduates of medical school have a pretty significant amount of debt. I mean, when I went to Wake Forest, and people are going to shoot me on the other end, when I went to Wake Forest Med School, I think the first year tuition was about $15,000. And uh, and by the time I left, it was maybe sixteen or $17,000. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's four times that now. I yeah. actually don't know the exact price, but it's something like that, right? That's where it would be. This will also kill you. When I went to law school, it was $400 a semester. Wow. Public school was highly subsidized in those days. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's insane. The books cost more than the tuition. So anyway, it's a great it's a great place to be and a good thing to do. I would say that um, the other thing that continues to be really needed, and there's more energy going into this, is just more and more physician leaders uh, leaders uh, for the system, for health care, et cetera. So it used to be that, um, you know, most of the physicians, just let's say of my dad's generation, and again, he practiced from 1960-something to the mid-'90s, uh, you know, you just kind of had your little office, you did your own thing, maybe you served on a hospital committee, whatever. It was all very, you know, fragmented in cottage industry. Now it's much bigger uh, now it's so important to have uh, physicians who have some sense of how a system works, uh, having input and direction on what's happening. Ideally, leading a lot of that would be awesome. And there are plenty of doctors now, more than there used to be, who are going back and getting MBAs or MHAs or something like that to say, I think I need to know more just about kind of how things work, and then I can jump into that. And, and have a lot of meaning. And I think there's a perspective and an insight that can come from that kind of leadership that uh, maybe isn't as present for people who have never gone through, you know, that path of being a doctor, mm-hmm. right? you know, or a PA or a nurse practitioner. Um, so I think that's pretty helpful and important. I will say, however, to be a really good physician leader, you kind of have to forget everything you know on what made you a successful physician because that has to do more so with being in control of everything, mastering the details, understanding it all, and then deciding and acting. And the higher up you go in leading, it's not that, mm-hmm. right? It is delegating. It is inspiring. It is understanding. It's empowering. It's trusting. It's all these kind of things. And if physician leaders that have to know all the details, review everything, they will not go very high because you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You just can't do that. Yeah. Right? You mentioned the uh, crushing amount of debt some of these you know, med yeah. students come out of. Oh, I mean, yeah. how do you know? How do we overcome that? I mean, there's probably a yeah. lot of people who would you know have this drive yeah. to help people yeah. and really want to uh, yeah. become and probably yeah. have the intelligence to to mm-hmm. to make it through med school. But it just it's just insurmountable to to do yeah. that. And we have a a, a real uh, deficit of rural doctors mm-hmm. yep. and fam- yep. you know just general practitioners yep. and and. You know, what's, what's the answer there? <laughs> <laughs> we are skating outside my normal zone of expertise. So I'm just be freewheeling here. Um, yeah, you probably need to talk to the, to the med school people. I mean, I think what's happening in medical education and the cost of it is the same as what's happening in all higher education, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I think as it gets higher and higher, people start questioning, well, what's the value of that? Mm-hmm. I mean, there were uh, have been kids in my children's high school classes, and my kids range from 20 to 30 now, uh, some of whom chose not to go to college, literally at all. They're like, nope, I'm going to do my own programming, I'm going to do coding, I'm going to start my own business, I'm going to do whatever, because 
going to college isn't that helpful for what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And especially if it's super costly. Yeah. Uh, and and this this will kill you on college, too. My brother went to uh, UNC Chapel Hill in the 80s. Tuition was like $220 a semester. Mm-hmm. That's like nothing. Yeah, yeah. It was way underwritten more than it is now in mm-hmm. public education. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a toughie. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's you know the the return on investment again for yeah. a college education really depends on the field that you go into, and right, and that right. landscape is changing so rapidly right. with AI and robotics right. and all this right. thing. I mean, you hear. Uh, candidates like Andrew Yang talk about, you know, the UBI because there's going to be millions of people put out of work in the next 10 years because those industries are just going to go away. They're going to be right. fully automated. So right. um, that kind of brings up the question, like, how do we in healthcare create a different or maybe new levels of extenders? You know, mm-hmm. we talk about mm-hmm. healthcare extenders, sure, yeah. PAs, yeah, yeah. and, oh, and yeah. but is there, is there, you know, is there actually or is there a possibility of creating a new level of healthcare frontline people that yeah. can go out and have enough knowledge? I mean, yeah. on the wellness and preventative area to go out. But even on the care area, I would toss in there. Yeah, even on the care, I mean, for simple things and just, you know, basic thing. No, you don't need antibiotics. That's a virus. It won't help. Yeah. You know, those kind of yeah. things. And we, we there seems to be... Um, and I, you know, I agree with it to an extent is the hierarchy of, of medicine and the further yeah. specialization you get. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. and that I think is necessary to a point. But I think that there should be a relaxation of the lowest level or the front line. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, yeah, and sure. wouldn't that be great if there was a one year training for those who have yeah. sort of a, 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 yeah. a basic prerequisite set of skills yep. that we could well, unleash into society? Yeah. And, and that's actually how other countries do it. Right. I mean, that's totally how they organize healthcare. So the ones, you know, whether that's Canada, Japan, Israel, you know, Britain, whoever, mm-hmm. Uh, all those countries organize it like that. So America is upside down, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So you know we have this huge. We have we have the tiny, <laughs> the tip of the pyramid is is facing down on mm-hmm. the ground, right? And then we have in terms of general practitioners, big category of those people, and then the specialists, which is the huge, you know, what should be the base of mm-hmm. it. Other countries flip that, yeah, right. And so they have people that go out. They have social workers that are always going out. They have uh, nurses that are going out. They have nurse practitioners that are going out. They have public health nurses. They have all these people out in the field, sometimes pharmacies in some countries. And those are the frontline people helping you sort out what do you need, mm-hmm. how can I help you. And that, honestly, is the kind of thing we design for companies. Mm-hmm. Very effective. Same idea. Let's just take somebody who knows some stuff and send them out and let them be helpful to you. And and so it's very cost-effective and very good tendency in America is to quickly push it up to the highest mm-hmm. specialty level possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, and for the most part, that doesn't satisfy the specialist, uh, you know, nor is it good, you know, for the system as a whole. If my ear hurts, I don't have to go to the ear, nose, and throat doctor first, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> or, or if I have a headache, I probably don't need to see neurology first. Right. Some people do, but <laughs> not everybody, right? And so you're totally right. You know, if there were a way to flip that, that that would radically change. Mm-hmm. Well, I see some happens. some starts of that or the beginnings of it where you know, the Walgreens and the Rite Aids are, yeah. are they're oh, starting yeah. to have clinics yep. in there. Yep. But that doesn't address the cost problem. I'm, you know, as a personal anecdote, I'm, I'm a dual citizen of Grenada, oh, okay. and they have socialized medicine down okay. there. And every Tuesday, people line up at the clinic to get their their sugar tested, they yeah. call it, yeah, and, their, yeah. and their blood yeah. pressure and, yep. and and all that. So there is a, a, a community buy-in yeah. to preventative medicine. Yep. So, yep. And, and they do have, they don't have, the doctor comes a certain day of the week. Yeah. You know, so if you have more complex thing, that's when you go. But but everyone yeah. knows the days yeah. that to, to, exactly to right. go up. And, and yep. it's just part of the culture, you know, it's, yep. and, and, and it's free. And, yeah. And, and, and it's to, very low cost, actually. Yeah. To do it that way. Right. Sort of there. Yeah. Right. And you don't have people showing up at the ER with, yeah. with yeah. you know, all these advanced problems. I mean, the, the re- <laughs> this might be a good thing to end on. The reality is, I mean, healthcare is the way it is because of how the funding is done. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So, so I'm a pediatrician. Uh, in America, pediatricians are in offices doing primary care, lots of well checkups on you know healthy babies and healthy children and teenagers. In most other countries, pediatricians are in the hospital. They are the children's specialist. That's where they are, right? And and so it's just this sort of example of how we have oriented things in America. As a pediatrician, well. On the, on the salary totem pole, you're at the very bottom. <laughs> but if you spend all your time in the hospital and truly have to get paid on a volume basis on what you see and do, you will come out worse than if you do it in an office, right? And it's like, well, that's kind of silly. you got these people who are highly trained to care for really sick children. They should all be there, right, in that, in that context. And so the tough thing is, you know, the, the funding of it all, it's what drives everything. I mean, when I went to med school in the 90s, there was going to be this huge push for primary care, and everyone decided they wanted to be family medicine instead of, you know, anesthesia or surgery or whatever. Those places were hurting for folks and their mm. programs because, you know, primary care was going to get paid a ton, and it was going to be so great. And the reality is there hasn't been the political backing for that. There's lots of political backing in reality for high-end procedures and devices and interventions, mm. and, and, I, and I don't— that's not coming from the doctors. That's actually coming from the true companies that make all that. Mm-hmm. You know, the influence of politicians that determine the fees is essentially where that goes. And and so that is, you know, you get what you pay for kind right. of thing. And so so that's a toughie, right? Yeah. That That's a real, real difficult thing to change. Well, tell me this, and we'll end after this, is what are you most hopeful for? I mean, what do you see is excites you most about the future in the healthcare? Yeah, I think the thing that probably excites me the most is that there, um, there is an interest and an appetite in doing things differently. So, you know, my true wiring, how, how I'm wired up is, is as a status quo changer. You know, I like to look at things that aren't going well and say, how do we make that better and what could be different? And, and so that is uh, where at least some of the wind is blowing, not every quarter, but corner, but some of the wind is blowing in that direction. And that is one of the things that the ACA Obamacare actually did. You know, it began to shift a lot of the Medicare payments to say, we're going to turn this boat toward paying more and more for outcomes and value. And other insurance companies are doing that. And, and in essence, um, Self-funded employers are doing that. And so there's more and more interest in having it be different. And so to me, that's inspiring and also sort of the playground where I like to play mm-hmm. is to say, God, how can we do that better? What would that look like? You know, what would it look like if no one ever crashed driving their car? <laughs> right? I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? Well, hopefully right? we're close to that, too. <laughs> <self-driving> <laughs> yeah. <cars. laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, that'd be good, too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your time today. Oh, yeah. And I'm yeah. so thrilled to have you come and, yeah, and share pleasure. your thoughts with us. So Fun, fun to talk. All right. Always well, glad when there's an audience. All right. For more information about Northwest AHEC, go to nwahec.org. Thank you. Thanks.